Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 11th, 2022. Uh, regular viewers on the show know I like to be build on natural beasts, bring unusual things together. And that's what we're doing, I think, on today's show. We've done a number of shows on graphic novels, one with the great uh, graphic artist Kate Beaton on her new book, Ducks, which is a, a socioeconomic political critique, I think, both of her own life, a kind of memoir, and of the Canadian oil industry. And we also did an interesting uh, conversation with um, Donald Robertson, who has a graphic novel out about Stoicism. Uh, Robertson told me he's the author of uh, Verissimus, uh, the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, and he believes that it's his best approached in graphic form. So that's the graphic side of today's show. On the other hand, there's Vladimir Putin. We've done so many shows on Putin. I feel like... Um, it's hard to make him boring, but perhaps we have. Uh, we did one with Angela Stent, very distinguished uh, Washington, D.C.-based uh, Putinologist, if you like, on how Putin's created a paranoid and polarized world. One with Brian Klass, imagining what, uh, what Putin's brain might look like if we could do a scan of it. Uh, one with Marie Yovanovitch, the former U.S. Uh, ambassador to Ukraine, who, of course, compares Putin with Donald Trump. And yesterday, an interesting show with Mark Galliotti, uh, the author of We Need to Talk About Putin and also Putin's Wars, another D.C.-based uh, Putinologist. Well, today we're bringing those two worlds together of graphic art and uh, Putinology uh, with my guest, uh, Andrew Weiss, uh, his day job is at the Carnegie Institute for Peace, but he's the author of a new book called Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin, a graphic novel about Putin himself. And he is joining us from his home in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So how'd you get this idea, Andrew, for this graphic novel, bringing together graphic art? You didn't do the art. You have a, a co-author, uh, Brian Boz uh, uh, Brown, but you did the, the text, and I'm guessing it was pretty much your idea. Well, no, it was definitely a big departure from what I do in my day job, where you know I write memos for a living, or I write op-eds, and I write uh, academic style reports about Russia. But there was a feeling I've had for a long time that people in my line of work are largely um, talking to each other. And that a lot of the conversations we're having are somewhat insular. And I really wanted, given the outsized impact that Putin's having on the world, to reach different groups of people. So I wanted to reach people who follow the news really closely and are obviously concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, but I also thought it was also important to reach younger people. And the graphic novel format is magical for, for reaching different audiences, but doing it in a way that really hits home. And that, that was the goal of this book. It's a beautiful uh, book. 
wonderful achievement. Congratulations. It's just out. Um, it's going to be one of those cult classics. Are, are you saying anything, though, Andrew, in the book about Putin that hasn't been said a hundred times before? No, good question. And Putin is someone who has been covered to death. But what's, what's sort of striking is, despite the fact that the man has been in the public eye now for two plus decades, is he's also not always well understood. Part of that is by design. The very early stages of his career, the Kremlin wanted to foster a certain image of him, particularly in the Russian audience. Um, over time, that sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger superhero image that they were pushing because they thought that this would be a good contrast to the booze hound, uh, Boris Yeltsin, the previous Russian predecessor, a uh, pre previous Russian president. That image sort of crossed over into the West and became part of our pop culture. But then after the 2016 presidential election, people started to kind of being uh, to be unable to distinguish what the artifice was, what the embellishment was and what the actual Putin is. And so the book, the original genesis for the book was to really help people unpack the extent to which artifice and manipulation were cardinal to how we view Putin. And at times we've lost sight of who he actually is. And my own experience dealing with Putin at an earlier stage of my career when I was at the White House, as well as being one of the people who uh, tried to ring the alarm bell and call attention to the likelihood of war in Ukraine, I think was the, the goal here is to say there are things about Putin and what motivates him that we're not getting and that we're tuning in too much and, and maybe overweighting the things that he wants us to believe about himself or what motivates him on the world stage. Uh, in our conversation with Galliotti yesterday, um, particularly in terms of his, his new book, uh, Putin's Wars, uh, Galliotti suggested to me that... Um, the way to get to Putin, the way to understand Putin is to see him as a, a, a mid-level post-Soviet, Soviet bureaucrat, security bureaucrat, who was profoundly disappointed by the collapse of the Soviet Union and has been trying to put it back together ever since. I'm not sure how original it is, uh, but he certainly articulated that vision very coherently. Are, are you in Galliotti's camp? Is the way to make sense of Putin to understand his career within the old Soviet Union? Yeah, Mark's terrific and a, and a great colleague. And I, I, it reminds me of what my agent had suggested as the best title for my book, which was uh, The Spy Who Came In From Middle Management. And yeah, that's a, a good one. About, <laughs> there's a lot about Putin that that, that title encapsulates. Um, and I think we have a tendency to overthink or overstate some aspects, both that, you know, Putin has, uh, he's always wrapped himself in the trappings of Imperial Russia and of the, the legacy of the Soviet Union as the victor in World War II and use those things to legitimize himself. Where, uh, and where I probably part ways a bit with Mark is the notion that restoring what was lost when the Soviet Union came crashing down is the, the sort of ghost in the machine or the thing that sort of really drives Putin. There was a long time where I thought Putin would say things 
like he would say, for example, the Soviet Union's collapse was the greatest uh, geopolitical yeah. catastrophe. But then he would always sort of catch himself and say, but any, anyone who doesn't mourn the loss of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anyone who wants it back has no brain. And so there were parts of the Soviet legacy that Russia wanted to stay away from because they were a sinkhole for Russian resources and a distraction from the bigger things Russia wanted to accomplish on the world stage and would become, you know, sort of an albatross around the neck of any Russian leader. Ukraine is different than, say, restoring Russian domination in Central Asia um, much further away and, frankly, much less strategically important. And already, frankly, the race there is won. But what Putin has now done by launching this criminal war is make himself, you know, put himself in a total bind where he's not going to have the same role on the global stage, which is what he was always really striving for. He really wanted Russia to be at the top table and to have, in many ways, a veto or a leading voice over the big decisions of the day. And now he's basically squandered that. And the, the, you know, the biggest role he's likely to play is as a menace, as a source of threat, or potentially as a spoiler. So uh, you, you say that um, you kind of, in part, share the Galeotti take on Putin, although they're not in, entirely. What's your take then? Uh, why did he invade Ukraine? Is he crazy? Is he lost his mind? Is he being... Uh, advised by military people, by crazy nationalists? How do we make sense of what you call this accidental czar? I, I had a paper that was released about a year or so ago called Ukraine, Putin's Unfinished Business. And in that paper, um, my colleague Eugene Rumer and I basically laid out the reasons why Ukraine was different. So let's unpack those real quick. Putin bears the distinction of being the Russian leader who's lost Ukraine now three times. And these were the biggest defeats and embarrassments of his entire career. So in 2004, there was the Orange Revolution, where Putin and the Kremlin tried to install a preferred candidate in an election, and it backfired spectacularly when the fraud was... In your book, you, um, you put it beautifully, how Putin came to fear color revolutions, and of course... That revolution was particularly colored. Exactly. And for him, you know, that that view crystallized a lot earlier. It crystallized back in the, the year 2000 when Slobodan Milosevic was overthrown as a result of a spontaneous grassroots protest movement um, that took shape. And then when he tried to steal an election in the year 2000, the people of, of Yugoslavia, I'm sorry, of Serbia took to the streets to protest that. So there's always been a side of Putin which is really afraid of color, what he calls color revolutions, but denies agency to everyday people in their rejection of unpopular authoritarian governments. Um, the second big you know, loss, obviously, was in 2014 when the, the Maidan erupted in a similar fashion and you had the revolution of dignity. And now, spectacularly, in this third phase, Putin has blown up any hope he has of ever having a normal relationship with Ukraine ever again, at least for the next several generations. But the, the point of what we, what we were arguing in our paper was that for Putin, 
two things were going on. One was over the course of the period after the war started in 2014, Ukraine became a partner of the United States and its, its allies in NATO. And they were doing things in Ukraine over every year, basically just more and more and more and pouring more resources in. And it was creating a kind of fear that over time, Ukraine would be a base from which the United States and other NATO countries could operate against Russia and make it less secure. And the other piece of the puzzle was opportunism. And when Putin witnessed the collapse of the Afghan government in summer of 2021, he came up with kind of a false comparison in his mind that a US-backed government would crumble basically overnight if he applied pressure against it. And he also looked at that moment last summer, summer of 2021, at the departure of Angela Merkel as Germany's leader, as well as the fact that the Zelensky government was mired in a series of, of crises and was very uh, increasingly- yeah, I'm not sure, Andrew, whether you're really answering my question. I asked you about Putin and you got into a long piece about a white paper you wrote about Ukraine. Are you suggesting then that he's a fairly rational political actor he tries to make sense of international politics. He takes advantage of opportunity if he can. Or are you suggesting that Ukraine is some sort of psychosis in his mind and that when it comes to the Ukraine, because as you say, somewhat convincingly, that he's lost it three times, that he loses reason when he thinks about the Ukraine? You, you seem to be presenting two arguments, two incompatible arguments in parallel. No, I don't think they're incompatible. And I think they are both they both define who Putin is and why Ukraine has been this special thing that is proven to be his biggest uh, embarrassment and biggest failure. So it's the combination of the impulsive and emotional side. And I literally get at that emotional, impulsive side on purpose on the very first page of the book. And I try to make the argument when people ask me this kind of question that that's the real risk we're all facing is will the impulsive emotional side of Putin be what dominates his decision making in Ukraine? And right now, today, we're having a really great illustration of this, which is the Russian withdrawal from the city of Kherson, which is a spectacular setback for the Russians in Ukraine. We don't know how Putin will react to that. Will he simply hunker down and try to uh, wait everybody out and retreat to more defensible lines? Or will he feel he needs to do things to well, escalate? But, but Andrew, you, you, it sounds to me that you, you're, you're representative of a kind of hardline hawk position in Washington, D.C. towards Putin. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times um, a couple of days ago, uh, Ukraine peace talks remain distant, even as Moscow signals the retreat you're talking about. And you were actually quoted. You said, it's understandable that people in the West are shaken by the prospect that this horrible war could drag on for months, if not years. Um, but we should not fool ourselves into thinking that the Russians have ever negotiated in good faith about Ukraine. Sounds to me from, from, from the quote that you gave to the New York Times that you don't believe there's any point in talking even to Putin, that we shouldn't trust him in any way on Ukraine. At this point, chasing after Putin for some form of a diplomatic conversation is likely to send him the wrong message. It's likely to send a message that we aren't resolute in our support for Ukraine. It's likely to be read by the Ukrainians as a possible undercutting of what they're trying to accomplish on the battlefield. 
And then ultimately, it's what you just raised, Andrew, which is that has Putin given up on his maximalist goals? And let's remember what those goals are. He would like regime change in Kyiv, wants a different government. He wants a veto over that country's independence and sovereign decision making. And at this point, it seems like he also wants to carve it up and basically claim parts of it for Russia. So if you think that those are irreducible for him, we need to be very careful about the kind of conversations we have. I think the conversations that the U.S. administration is currently pursuing, which have to do primarily with escalation and trying to make sure that we have good lines of communication so that we avoid accidents and escalation, like all of that is to the good and to be applauded. Let, let's but, stand back a little bit, Andrew. Um, uh, you know, we, we've, we, we, because of the Ukraine, it's, it's hard to avoid the subject. But the subject of your, the, your title is Accidentals Are the Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. And it's not really about the Ukraine. Are you suggesting then that the Ukraine is... The one is the issue that this accident, what you call this accidental czar, has put all his chips on. That the whole, the whole narrative, the whole story of Vladimir Putin now has come down to Ukraine. I am not sure. There's a side of him which has bet everything on this war, thought it would go really well. It was an epic blunder, and it's going horribly. He was willing to bet his entire legacy his standing on the world stage, the prosperity of, that he had built up over more than two decades, and the connections to the outside world that had benefited Russia and arguably the outside world over the course of the post-1985 period. He blew all of that up on account of a pseudo-historical reason, uh, a reading of history that Ukraine isn't a real country and that the people of Ukraine are just uh, basically a version of Russia. Would you apply this to the, the Crimean narrative too, or just to, 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 the, to the latest war, the second Ukraine war, if you like? I, I see what happened in Crimea somewhat differently. In, uh, in 2014, we were talking about this earlier, there was a spontaneous grassroots protest movement that spiraled into a, a, a revolution that toppled Viktor Yanukovych. And when that happened, Putin believed, as he had seen starting in Serbia and then again in countries like Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan, and then in the Arab Spring, that this was all the U.S. handiwork and that ultimately the goal of U.S. policy is regime change in Russia and that what was happening in Ukraine was a dry run for a similar effort to topple him. And seizing Crimea and starting the covert war in Donbass in 2014 were ways of basically staving that off. And he then draped it all in this kind of pseudo um, rationalization of how Crimea is the cradle of Russian statehood and Catherine the Great had laid claim to the portions of Donbass and he was just redressing historical injustices. I personally find all of that to be self-serving and unconvincing. Let's, as I said, let's look at this whole situation a little bit more broadly. We did a show with Vladislav Zubok, a wonderful book, Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union, a book about the failure of Gorbachev uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we called it The Soviet Union Might Be Dead, but the consequences of its disastrous collapse continue to haunt us. He, of course, 
traces a clear route between uh, Gorbachev's failure to understand power and the rise of Putin. Was Putin dealt a bad hand um, in Russia, uh, Andrew? I mean, what could he have done? I mean, leaving us, let's try and avoid Ukraine for the moment because it's a bit of a sinkhole. But more broadly, if your argument is right, and he was indeed the accidental czar and he acquired power through forces which he had nothing to do with, what could he have done when he came to power that would make him a more palatable figure, both to people like us and to perhaps most Russians themselves? Well, I, I think up to this point, Putin has been quite genuinely popular inside Russia. And he's been around certain people, not the people you yeah. talk to, but or I talk to the people on my show. But yeah, he has. I mean, there is a, a Trumpian element there, isn't there, in terms of the kind of people who seem to like him. And he's delivered. I mean, Russia was more prosperous under Putin than it had been at any point in the previous thousand years. And that's not a trivial accomplishment. And Russia enjoyed socioeconomic gains that were dramatic in the first decade or so of Putin's rule. And you had economic growth on the order of almost double digits for an entire decade. A lot of that was the byproduct of the global commodities boom and the run up, especially in oil prices and demand for commodities from a rising China. That was beneficial pretty much and trickled down to almost all segments of Russian society. So you got to give the man his due. He presided over a period of real growth and uh, benefit for average people and made the Russian elite, you know, dirty, filthy rich um, in ways that they had never experienced themselves either. The, the question that you raised, though, about was he dealt a bad hand? I think I would flip it around on you, Andrew. How many tanks, I'll just ask you this question, how many tanks did the United States have in Europe when the war in Ukraine started in 2014? Zero. So at that point, the Russians had been- Please do answer that, uh, okay. uh, Andrew, because I didn't know the answer. So I'm sorry to play the rhetorical card on you, but it's, you know, it, it says a lot that for the better part of a decade, the Russians kept saying, NATO, 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 we're so worried about this horrible mm. thing. The reality was they had not raised major concerns about NATO, and they were happy to use it as a convenient boogeyman to justify defense expenditures and other things. And the U.S., they were perfectly happy to, to basically not have to worry about it and to focus on other challenges that Russia had. Yeah, I take your point. It's an interesting argument, but it's kind of like Trump who goes on and on about the deep state and then breaks the law so many times that he gets investigated all the time. Could the same be true about um, Putin, that he's so obsessed with the Second World War and encirclement and paranoia and blah, 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 that in a way there's a certain logic to how he's behaved. He's almost forced the Americans to re-enter Europe. To, to put tanks back on the ground. Oh, this is ultimately not good for him. I, I think that the well, no, well, I, I tell you, it's not good for him, although who knows yeah. what's good for him. He's an old man. He probably doesn't have many years to live. But is there some logic to what he's doing? I mean, we all we want to figure this guy out because we don't want the world to blow up, right? No, it's and hard. We want to try and yeah. fix what's happening in Ukraine. I, I think it's quite hard, Andrew, to look at what he's doing and say this makes sense. And we then apply because we're Westerners, like we either want to fix it or because um, he's got a grievance, we want to redress it. And the reality is the accumulation of grievances on his end has just gone through the roof 
over the past two decades. And this is you know, captured in this great moment, the first time he sits down with Barack Obama, and all he does is like for an hour and a half is it's a long monologue of all the things the West has done wrong uh, to Russia and how we owe him. And there's a, you know, being the president of Russia, the, the great joy of that is you never have to say you're sorry. You don't have to apologize for uh, conducting a, a, a dangerous nerve agent attack in a southern British city. Well, you don't I don't remember all the last time American presidents uh, apologized either. It's true of running any great power, including China. So it's not just a Russian problem. Um, you know, I, I just think it's, it's audacious and self-serving. And, you know, my, my sense of what we're dealing with right now is a country that is led by someone who is in a full-scale war that is going horrible, uh, where his conventional military power is being shredded. And the main thing he has left at his disposal are either the nuclear weapons, which are the ultimate insurance policy for his regime, or, which seems more likely to me, these asymmetrical tools. And that's been the stuff that Russia falls back on. And the book includes a long... Okay, but in a couple of sentences, Andrew, what what are we going to do? It's all very well mythologizing this guy, talking about paranoia, blah, blah, blah. But we've got to do something. Are you saying you just don't talk to him? You go to war? You you arm the Ukrainians with nuclear weapons? What are we supposed to do? There's some first principles here. First, and and the, you know, the first principles have been pretty clear since the beginning of this war. One is we want to avoid the war spilling over beyond the borders of Ukraine. It should not become a broader European war. Two, it should not be a- I don't want to argue with you on that. Glad to hear it. Second is it should not be a direct, uh, it should not be an occasion for a direct military confrontation between the United States and Russia or NATO and Russia. And we need to preserve some modicum of guardrails and lines of communication to make sure that doesn't happen. And then third, we need to help the people of Ukraine push the Russians back. And that could take months, if not years. So we have to have the staying power and the ability to you know, preserve the unity. It's a little bit like Vietnam to me, uh, the beginnings of Vietnam, where we don't get involved, but we arm our allies. Um, some people might be watching this, Andrew, and thinking this guy, he, he runs this thing called the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, but he seems to be articulating a, a rather bellicose attitude towards Russia. Uh, we've had a number of, I'm not sure if they're apologists for Putin or Russia, but people like Joe Weisberg, I'm sure you're familiar with his book, who tend to think that we, we're taking a too hard line on, on Putin and Russia. Is there, is there a, 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 re- a, a credible realist argument, Andrew? I mean, you deal with this on a daily basis. You bump into people like Weisberg and many other international relations experts who believe perhaps that, 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 that we are ourselves too bellicose. Is, is, there any, um, is, is there any possibility that they may be right, that we may regret this hardline approach to Putin? It's a great question, Andrew. And if, you know, if I may, in the book, I talk about the misconceptions and mistakes that the West has made in its dealings with Russia going back to the 1990s. So there's no shortage of, of critique in the book about Western expectations that were overly rosy and as well, a kind of effort to take advantage of Russia when it was at its weak point. And yeah, one summary of this is we had someone on the show recently, Muppets in Moscow, 
Everyone thought that we could culturally colonize the Russians. We even took the Muppets to Moscow, and we can imagine the consequences of that. Sorry, go on, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can imagine how that struck fear, um, you know, in, in the hearts of Russians that they had to watch Sesame Street. No, I mean, Russians <laughs> enjoyed all of the benefits of globalization for the past 30 plus years, and they became part of that international cultural mainstream. And they added to it and enriched it. And part of what we're seeing in the period since the street protests of 2011, 2012, which I, I go into in some detail in the book, were the main beneficiaries of Putin's rule basically saying this is not acceptable anymore. You can't treat us as subjects. We want to be citizens. And what's so interesting is if you think about the way Putin now has presented himself on the world stage as if he's a member of the Global Tea Party and a defender of the family and an opponent of LGBTQ equality and all these things, all of that is also largely artifice. And it's largely a kind of self-serving move that he began more than a decade ago to basically take Russian middle-class or urbanite values and flip them around and say to more like Joe Sixpack Russians, Anyone who wants this stuff is not a real Russian. Anyone who wants democracy here is not a real Russian. And the way forward is to unify around me, the national leader, and we all have to band together in this besieged fortress to defend our, you know, our special historical and cultural and religious traditions. And it's all, to me, just it, it, people buy into it and the Republican embrace of Putin in the Trump era and now more recently, you know, again, it just suggests people have not really been in on the joke and they don't see how much Putin is play acting. Yeah, but he, in this sense, he's, is he any different from Orban, from Modi, from Duterte, from Bolsonaro, from Trump? That stuff sells. It sells to a certain segment of global opinion. It sells in the U.S. to a certain segment of our polarized uh, polity. Um, and so the Russians are well, opportunists. When you say sell, sell, sells, um, uh, Andrew, that's politics. You keep on talking about citizenship. Citizenship is about, politics is about selling ideas to citizens. What's the difference between that and the colored revolutions you talk about? I'm not totally sure I follow you, Andrew. I think that the fact that the Russian government... Well, you're saying that he plot... sells. He's selling an idea. That's what politics is, isn't it? I guess, but if you feel comfortable with the Russian intelligence services trying to manipulate Americans into viewing Russia a certain way or damaging the integrity of, integrity of our democratic processes, I sure as, you know, surely don't. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, you're not going to sell me on it, and I, I'm sure he's not going to sell you on it. But my, my point is that I guess my final question is, I mean, how unique is, is Russia? We had um, Ian Kershaw, the great British historian on the show uh, this week as well. He has a new book out, Personality and Power, Builders and Destroyers of Modern Europe. And he has 12 figures and two Russians get into the book, uh, Stalin and Lenin. Could Putin still get in to a, an equivalent of the Kershaw book about 21st century builders and destroyers? Does he still have potential? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think we've seen the back of Vladimir Putin here. This is a formidable person with tremendous will to power, with considerable reserves of staying power. 
and he's not breaking a big sweat right now necessarily over all the setbacks. And as much as we're celebrating those setbacks and we need to keep the pressure on, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that he's going to skulk away or, you know, come and say, I'm really sorry and look to kiss and make up with us. That's just not who Vladimir Putin is. He's almost a, in the way you're presenting him as an accidental. So I could have come out of a, a 19th century Russian novel out of Gogol or something. No, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot about Putin that connects back to Russian history, which, again, is a key theme in the book, is to say that this is not solely Putin centric or unique to his peccadilloes or shortcomings. And that the, you know, the kinds of Russian values that, you know, have been cardinal to how that country has been organized, the need for a strong state, the need for a highly centralized authority sitting in Moscow deciding everyday matters. I mean, to give you one example of that that's in the book, in the middle of the 16th century or the 17th century, small real estate transactions in little villages near the Arctic Circle had to be registered in Moscow. And it took roughly a year to make the journey from those villages to get to Moscow to register your real estate deals. So these are not new trends or new aspects of how Russia is governed. Yeah, it's the uh, onion. It's Churchill's onion, or is the sort of metaphor of Russia as the onion that keeps on unwrapping. It's a fascinating argument, fascinating conversation. We Muppets in Moscow failed, but uh, we have a new version, uh, Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lives of Vladimir Putin. It's a wonderful book, wonderful art memorable in lots of levels. I think it's going to be a classic, both for kids and grown-ups, for Russian experts and people who don't know much about Russia. Congratulations, Andrew. You may have to leave your day job at the Carnegie Institute for Peace and become a full-time writer. What else are you uh, reading these days that um, could help entertain or educate our viewers and listeners? strongly endorse uh, that folks take a look at a book, and you may have already had this person on, by Linda Kinsler, Come to This Court and Cry. Yeah, Linda was on the show about the Holocaust. Very good book. Yeah, so really interesting stuff, looking at sort of family and the Holocaust and the sort of Nazi legacy in Latvia. 